This is Talking Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talking Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Black-Tailed Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Hey, this is Jody Stemmler. And I'm Steve Belinda. Welcome back to Talking Mule Deer. Hey, Jody, guess what? What? It's fall. It is. Well, yeah, it's it's getting close. Of course, it's still like eight. Well, actually, we had a nice cool down rain yesterday, so it's cooled down a bit here, but it's been in the 90s a lot, but it's coming. Yeah, hot Fall's seasons coming. have started. I know. Guess, awesome. guess what? This is also our 75th episode. You're not that old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it doesn't seem like it was too long ago. We were sitting there struggling in that room with the horrible audio, <laughs> trying to that figure first out. first recording how to do was pretty, this. pretty, pretty painful. <laughs> but we figured it out, and I, and I well, think, and, and then we had to go through COVID and not being able to get together and actually do this, and, and then figuring out how to do like video so we could at least see each other, so we could respond. To, I mean, there's been a lot of learning curve in this process. Yeah, well, for, for the 75th episode, we brought back two very special guests, Jody. Uh, um, first off, it's our new CEO, Joel Peterson's back joining us. Welcome, Joel. Welcome. It's good to be here. It's uh, great to see that this is at 75 episodes now. I, I mentioned the last time I was on here how valuable this podcast was for my learning curve. And as we have brought more people on over the last few months, we continue to hear how many people are listening to this to understand what's going on with Mule Deer and with Mule Deer Foundation. So congratulations. Yeah. Thank you, Joel. Um, Glad to hear people are listening still. (laughs) Yeah. And and then our other guest is, is a repeat guest, probably our most uh, frequent guest, but there's a reason. It's because we like him. Yeah. It's a Jim Heffelfinger with the Arizona game and fish. Dr. Mule Deer Lay, we like to call him. (laughs) Welcome back, Jim. I don't like to be called that. That sounds no. a little self-aggrandizing. No, I'm not only happy to be here, I'm happy here that it's fall because my computer says it's 91 degrees and it's still climbing today here in Tucson. So we're just happy that when fall comes, we get down into the double digits of uh, temperature. <laughs> That's definitely a change, isn't it? Well, thanks, guys, for, for being on this. We, we chose for our 75th anniversary to have a topic that was extremely popular when we did it last year. Uh, Wait, which is, was it more popular than Miles Moretti's episode? Uh, yes, it was. <laughs> and, and it's because you were on it, Dr. <laughs> Mule Deer. Uh, it, and it was talking about the range-wide status. And, and I hate to say I'm guessing that it had very little to do with who was our guest or it had a whole lot of more to do with the fact that... We're providing the range-wide status assessment that the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies put out. So yeah, so no that's what we're going to be talking about again. So do you want to give us a little bit of an overview of what this document is all about to remind the people who may not have seen it last year or listened in last year? Yeah, happy to. I chair uh, the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies Mule Deer Working Group, and, and we've been together for 20 years. And about 10 years ago, uh, there's just a lot of interest in how are mule deer doing? What's the status of mule deer and black-tailed deer in the West? And so uh, about 10 years ago, we put together a document that went state by state, province by province, and and spent a page, normally about a page, just kind of illustrating what's going on with mule deer, black-tailed deer in that jurisdiction with at least one graph that showed com- some kind of trends in harvest or population objective. And it's been very popular because you can't answer 
the question of what's the status of mule deer or black-tailed deer in any kind of general broad brush way, because the different states and provinces, different populations doing different things in different parts of their range. And so we can't just put out a summary document that just talks about mule deer in the West. And so this is valuable because for the last 10 years, we have this document that we posted on the internet for everyone that just goes state by state, province by province, and, and gives the highlight of uh, just a snapshot of what's going on. And so it's been really popular with, with NGOs, conservation groups, reporters, other agencies, just to know what's going on. And so that's, that's what we'll be talking about today. And, and that, uh, that is available on the, on the Waffle website, which we'll, I'm sure we'll put a link in the, in the show notes and talk about it. So Jim, just for, for clarification, a lot of publications, popular publications out there, put deer forecasts and hunting forecasts out. And oftentimes it's unclear where that information is derived from. In this document, you are getting this right from the horse's mouth. These are the deer people in each state associated with the Mule Deer Working Group, correct? Yeah, right. So the Mule Deer Working Group is 24 Western states and provinces and territories in Western North America, every jurisdiction where Mule Deer or Black-tailed Deer uh, exist. And so this Mule Deer Working Group is made up of the Mule Deer or Black-tailed Deer expert from each of those 24 um, provinces and states and, and territories. And so each one of those representatives then writes that page that I was talking about. So you're getting it from the top mule deer, black-tailed deer uh, biologists in that, in that jurisdiction. Well, and it's important, it's important to note too, you, you comment that you chair the working group and this is a product you put out along with a number of other fact sheets, but you guys are talking and interacting on a regular basis. You have meetings, um, both physically, you come out to the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo, but also, um, you know, verbal meetings through the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. This is a group that's working together pretty actively and, and is keeping touch across uh, your jurisdictions. Is that right? Yeah, that's what's been really amazing. We got together at the beginning. We started talking about what can we do to, to help mule deer. And, and one of those things was just to maintain communication among biologists and among the administrators in those jurisdictions. And I think at the beginning, none of us really realized how important that was. But now looking back, it's really incredible that instead of if you got a question about, say, your state wants to change management to something different and you're kind of wondering if any other agencies have done that before and how successful it was before you might make a phone call to someone kind of cold call someone in another agency in another state. Now, this group of this Mueller working group is really a collection of friends, people that know each other really well, people that text each other, people that share funny memes back and forth just because we've got people that People that eat sushi together. Yeah, you go eat right. sushi. Uh. We do. We do. All you can eat sushi is, a, is an annual fixture at our, at our meeting at the expo. But, but here we've got this collection, this infrastructure of people. We all know each other. We all have our cell numbers. And so we can send an email out and say, hey, we're, we're thinking of going to this different management style. Has anybody tried it? And you get a flood of information, really valuable information about what's been done in the West. So even just that, that communication, which is not necessarily a real tangible thing, but just having that infrastructure where we can all talk to each other really freely and really easily has been a boon for, for mule deer and black-tailed deer conservation in the West. Now, Joel, um, your predecessor, Miles, uh, Moretti and I have worked closely with Mule Deer Working Group for a long time. Um, just want to kick it over to you to see, you know, your opinion, having been here a few months, the, the value and, and what your expectations from the organization are is, is to keep that continued or step it up or whatever. No, the relationship between Mule Deer Foundation and the Mule Deer Working Group is uh, incredibly important to MDF. Uh 
we don't have the the size on staff. We, we don't have the the financial ability to have all of the science power on staff that we can get by working closely with the agencies. And as a nonprofit organization, all we can do is help the state agencies and the federal agencies try to meet their objectives. And so we need to be in lockstep with what's happening and and we need to understand from those folks with the states what the challenges that mule deer and black-tailed deer are facing to understand how we can better integrate into that. And uh, as Steve, as you and I have been talking about, that's something that we're really going to focus on in this upcoming year is to up our game in that and make sure that we are doing the right work at the right scale in the right places based upon the information that we can get from the mule deer working group. But we're going to have to be in lockstep with those agencies to be successful in that. Yeah, I echo that and 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 was remiss in mentioning how supportive MDF has been from the very start because we're a collection of biologists in the Mueller Working Group. We don't have a budget to do anything and sometimes we need funding for publications and, and to do things. And and we don't have the outreach arm because we're just a bunch of deer biologists. And that that marriage between MDF and that collection of mule deer and black tailed deer specialists throughout the West has been it's been really helpful. MDF has been incredibly helpful for for the Mueller Working Group and and allowing us to achieve a lot of things. And and we we even have a presence uh, on the expo floor in Salt Lake City every February with the Western Hunting Conservation Expo where we have a giant booth which is provided to us. And, and we have mule deer experts from throughout the West that are there to answer questions and, and talk about, just answer questions about hunting and, and uh, mule deer management in those states and provinces. And, you know, it's really important to me because I get to be a biologist every now and then <laughs> throughout the course <laughs> of the year. Uh, I always keep that mule deer working group uh, time set aside and I always put a project or two that I have to be on site you know, given all the duties that we do and, and it allows me to go back to my roots, which is really a terrestrial biologist with a, with a real passion for mule deer. And, and, you know, it's been, as Jim mentioned, the networks, the relationships and the opportunities that is, that that group has provided us at MDF has allowed us to go raise more money, allowed us to get people on the ground. It's allowed us to go out and do more work every year over the past decade. And, you know, that can't be replaced. And, you know, I know we have a new uh, Waffle executive director who we hope to bring on the podcast here very soon, a colleague that we all know. And, and I think we can only strengthen that relationship. And Jim, as long as you're in your seat, you know, you seem to answer my calls still. So I, uh, I really appreciate that. So um, <laughs> I do what I can. <laughs> uh, getting back to the range wide plan and the reason folks are probably listening to us. Steve, um, I'm, I'm going to, you, you know, I always do this. I apologize, but we have to listen a few words from our supporters. So let's take a break real quick. This is a good segue. When we come back, we can, we can dig back into the range wide assessment. Elk, sheep, big old muleys, not a problem for the 27 nozzler. We packed it with more downrange punch than the 300 wind mag. We designed it to be flatter shooting than the 6.5 PRC. The 27 Nosler is everything you've heard, all that you've asked for, and plenty more. So enough talking. Check out the numbers for yourself and see what makes the 27 Nosler such a beast at Nosler.com. If you're buying or selling a trophy hunting or fishing property in the western U.S., Our friends at St. James Sporting Properties should be your go-to resource. St. James Sporting Properties is more than an elite group of professional ranch brokers. 
They're also passionate about chasing monster mule deer, highly successful big game hunters, and avid outdoorsmen. When you combine their passion and expertise in the outdoors with their industry-leading marketing program, you're guaranteed to have a first-class experience. For more information, go to the Supporting Partners page on MuleDeer.org or give St. James Sporting Properties a call today to buy or sell your dream sporting property. All right, we're back, and and I cut you off, and I apologize for that, Steve, but we we definitely need to listen to the supporters, the folks that help us with the podcast and other things here at the Mule Deer Foundation. We were about to segue into the range-wide assessment itself. Um, I'll let you ask the question. You were going to go? Yeah, so just in summary, the first page of the range-wide status report really, you know, summarizes uh, in three categories, increasing, decreasing, or stable, what I guess the numbers tell us and what the biologist's professional opinion are. And, and as Jim mentioned earlier, there's 24 states and provinces, but Northwest Territories really doesn't give us because they don't know what it is. And if you read that, it talks, you know, hey, it's it's a big, big province. Hasn't been anything formalized. We're not really sure. But of the 23 well, that well, the do. Northwest Territories has only had two mule deer sightings in the last like three decades. So they're, <laughs> <laughs> they've. They're surprisingly, they're surprisingly engaged, but um, I wouldn't fault them for not uh, being real engaged in the Mule Deer Working Group, given that. Well, the reason I mention it, Jim, is because you mentioned 24, but when you add up the numbers I'm about to give, it's only 23. Uh-huh. And yeah. so, so where's that Territories. one state? Yeah, it's Northwest Territories. Mm-hmm. And actually going through some compilations, getting ready for this podcast, I was like, why don't the numbers add up? And that's what I did. <laughs> yeah. uh, so six states are increasing. 10 states are stable and seven states are decreasing. Now, Jim, I want you to explain why that may not be an absolute. Yeah, that, it's, it's difficult. It seems to be pretty easy to say whether a, um, a population in a state or province is increasing or decreasing. But if just when you look at that document, you can look at some of those graphs and you may have uh, a jurisdiction where the mule population has been decreasing for 20 years. And then for the last seven years, it's sharply increasing. So do you call that an increasing or decreasing? And like Arizona is a good example where we've been increasing steadily for 15 years and we've had some droughts in the last few years. And so that that line has turned down. So actually in the last three years, you would say we have a decreasing population. So just just kind of to highlight the fact that there's some nuance and some complexity in whether we say increasing or decreasing. But what we said just to stabilize it for the purposes of just kind of summarizing it that way is just in the last three years, what is that deer population doing? Because we thought that that's probably most relevant. Um, what happened 20 years ago is kind of interesting, but most people are kind of interesting. What's going on right now in the last three years? And so that's what we use to make that call as to whether it's increasing or decreasing or stable. And then you get one jurisdiction where uh, you've got uh, population in the eastern part of the state that's declining because of some reason, maybe some harsh winters, and then population on the west side of the state uh, may be stable or, or going in the opposite direction. So just, just to keep that in mind, that this is kind of a North American snapshot overall of, of their range-wide status. Yeah, so thanks for that, Jim. And there are some overarching things that are affecting deer across multiple states. And as we talk about some of these states, I want folks to realize that drought, fire, uh, and other factors like that are, are having uh, regional impacts. Uh, I, and I would say even possibly a global impact given the last two years on our populations, because these are things we can't control. And so we just have to uh, address them as they come up, 
document the situation, but really it comes back to, you know, making sure that the habitats that are left out there are, are actually performing better than they were. And that's where we get into our conservation delivery model as we're trying to increase or maintain productive habitats so that populations can have what they need and, and hopefully be increasing where they're down, but at least stabilizing where, where they're in good shape. So one um, thing I think that it's important while we're talking about this here is that you mentioned six are increasing and 10 are stable and seven are decreasing. I, I continue to see people talk about the West wide Mueller decline that's been going on for decades. And, and I think I'm trying to get the word out and Mueller working group has been trying to get the word out that in the late nineties, we had this decline throughout the West, which is, which is the impetus to get the Mueller working group assembled is Mueller population are declining everywhere. And so everybody was was worried, well, is there some overall ubiquitous thing that's affecting mule deer? And we need to find out what that is and we need to fix it. And as it turns out, in hindsight, after two decades of working with mule deer and looking at population fluctuations, is that mule deer populations and black deer populations fluctuate in different parts of the country at different times for different reasons. So you may have a lot of precipitation one winter. And so in Alaska or in the Rocky Mountain states, a lot of precipitation in the winter means a lot of snow and that might be a severe winter with snow depth and cold temperatures but a lot of precipitation in the de desert southwest means a lot of rainfall and 70 degrees and forbs and and food everywhere and a lush year so that's an example of different parts of mule deer range with kind of the same thing a wet winter can can produce dramatically different effects on the population and so in the night it it, well, throughout time, different populations increase and decrease for different reasons. In the in the early 90s, for some reason, just by chance, they were kind of synchronized. And there was some harsh winters and some droughts, and they were all making mule deer populations kind of throughout the range decline, which which got everybody concerned. And, and that's why the mule deer working group was put together. But now since then, we've got increases and decreases. And, and really since that west-wide decline, almost all populations have responded and have increased. We don't have a west-wide Mueller decline anymore, but we're still below population objective in almost all states and provinces. So it's not like things are rosy. We're still below population objective. We're still working on habitat. We're still working to get those populations back to population objective. But as you can see, there's, we've, we've got six that are increasing and 10 that are stable. So we're not in a west-wide mule decline. I think that's important for people to understand because I, I just continue to see that being written in the popular press and in manuscripts. Well, you see it a lot in forums and chat rooms and social media too, Jim. And um, trying to explain the nuances of that, as you just did, is not conducive to keeping people's attention. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we have to sometimes, uh, and I see Joel laughing and shaking his head, restrain from responding in some of those forums because it's not about giving facts and getting a, it's it's really about opinion at that point and you know all all opinions are valid some are right some are wrong um it it really goes into what you said the, the west wide decline that we that we hear about and that was prevalent when we started our careers is no longer the case. And yeah, we had one biologist from one jurisdiction a number of years ago at the Mueller working group meeting, one of the representatives for the Mueller working group say, well, you guys quit talking about the Mueller decline because our constituents are coming to public meetings and they're holding up Mueller working group stuff, talking about the decline and we're at population objective and they want us to fix it, but we're at population objective. So that's an example of, you know, we need to be careful about how we talk about it. We don't have Mueller declining throughout the West. We've got a couple individual states that are declining and, and, and 
we can talk about those individually. Well, and, and again, I think it's important to point out that that even within the state, um, certain herd units, I mean, here in Colorado, their things are different on the West Slope than they are on the Front Range, you know, and, and that's or even smaller regions where um, populations may have been hit by fires. Um, some, you know, the, the year that happens, that may be a problem. The year after that might be a good thing. So, so again, when we're talking generally stable declining, it is still kind of an overall, it, it is, I don't, it's certainly not arbitrary, arbitrary, but it is a broad stroke of the pen. And we all need to kind of step back and say, okay, there's things, no matter what, there are things we can do with the habitat, with the things that we can do with, with tags that are going out when you guys are working on that. But you know, I, I think we have to all recognize that it is never a carte blanche. That's that's just not the way natural systems work. Right. Yeah. Mule deer population in Alberta are, are increasing um, pretty robustly. And you may have hunters in Alberta that don't want to hear that because the area they're hunting is not so good or they didn't get deer last year. But But just keep in mind, it's a broad brush generalization. The other thing I want to point out before we jump into the individual states that we want to highlight is... When you look at this report, uh, page two and three has the graphs, and we may pull those out for folks for ease of of trying to understand. And, you know, it's raw numbers, basically estimated population, total harvest, percentage of males, and hunter numbers. And, um, you know, those are important to hunters because percentage of males and number of hunters out there, what do we always hear? People want more bigger bucks and fewer people in there every hunting them and an increased chance of drawing that tag. But I really encourage the listeners to read the text of each state because it, it, it we mentioned this last year, each state does things a little bit differently in their estimations, in their trend analysis, and in the numbers that report. So you cannot compare it across all of the states. You have to understand how that state's doing it. And even within that state, as you mentioned, Jody, there's regional variation. And in the states that have both blacktail deer and mule deer, there's different ways of monitoring, counting, and, and assessing the current situation. So it really is, uh, details matter, and we encourage folks to go look at that. Um, we've got to take another break for our supporters. When we come back, we're going to jump right into a couple of the states, starting with Arizona. I'm Anthony Imperato, president of Henry Repeating Arms. Patriotic Americans are looking to protect and provide for their families now more than ever. Henry has over 200 rifles and shotguns to choose from, made in America or not made at all, and backed by a lifetime guarantee. Go to HenryUSA.com and order our free catalog, decals, and a list of dealers in your area. That's HenryUSA.com. Thank you, and God bless America. The best hunting stories begin long before the harvest. They begin with the hard work of conservation groups like the Mule Deer Foundation, working tirelessly to protect our hunting traditions. As a proud partner of MDF, Vortex Optics is dedicated to improving your experience in the field by offering you rugged, innovative optics and apparel backed by our VIP warranty, our unlimited lifetime promise to take care of you whenever you need us. Together, let's ensure mule deer always have a place to roam. The best hunting stories are yet to be told. Learn more at vortexoptics.com. All right, Steve, before the break, you were talking about the the document itself, and I wanted to, and we'll do this again later, but muledeerworkinggroup.org. Is that right? Is that a direct URL to get there? Muledeerworkinggroup.com. Dot com. Okay. Sorry com. about that. Yep. Um, yeah, we're, a, we're that... a dot com. So, dot com. And, w- and what happens is that 
the the WAFWA, the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, has a, an awesome website. And then one of the sub pages in there is the Mule Deer Working Group, and all of our information is there. But it's kind of complicated. The, the URL is kind of complicated to right. share in a situation like this. So we have basically a pass through URL that's muledeerworkinggroup.com. And if you just go to that, it'll take you seamlessly right to all of our information. Yep. And right now there is a, uh, they have a couple of uh, photo direct links and the range wide plan is in that. And then I also want to point out that it is easy. Um, Steve, you mentioned that there's tables in the front that have the overarching numbers, but to go in and read the description is important. And that document is a clickable PDF. So you can actually click to your state so that you can get right there rather than having to scroll through. So it's, it's trying to make sure that you're going to read the, the, the content yeah. and not just look at the top line numbers. Well, and I think we have it linked to on our Mule Deer uh, webpage, our Mule Deer Foundation webpage. So when folks are on there joining, renewing, upping their membership to the Mule Deer Foundation, they can very easily navigate to the Mule Deer Working Group through MDF. Excellent. Okay, Arizona. That's your home state there. Well, not your home state, but your current living state, Jim. So. <laughs> well, I've been here 30 years, so it's, it's pretty close. It's, it's home enough. <laughs> I'm starting to feel Arizona-y after 30 years. Uh, yeah, Arizona went through the same decline as a lot of other states and provinces in the 90s, and and we were concerned as well. And and most of that, just, just like it was throughout the West for a lot of agencies or a lot of states, most of that, if you remember, like in the late 80s, um, 1988, Yellowstone was on fire because it was so dry. Barges were running around in, in the Mississippi River. It, the summer of 88 was a was a bad drought. And that that dryness was not just that summer, but that a few years, uh, either either end of that in the late 80s. And that that fed into a lot of the population declines in a lot of the states where in the early 90s they were declining because of just lack of recruitment or lower recruitment than they needed to maintain the population. That certainly was true in Arizona. And so in the in the 90s, there was a decline in our deer populations overall. And then the last 15 years, a, a nice steady increase. And you would talk to hunters out there and they'd say, I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot more deer where we hunt. And you know, I, I tell them that that's what the data shows. It's nice when the data confirms what hunters are seeing, because that's not always the case for sure. But but even the hunters were saying, we're seeing a lot more deer where we're hunting. So we had this slow, steady increase for about 15 years. And then we've had some real bad droughts in the last few years. This last summer, up until starting in, in July, uh, Arizona was in, for, like, for example, about three months ago, the state of Arizona, 93% of it was in extreme or exceptional drought, according to the Drought Monitor website. So we were in a horrible, horrible drought for about a year and a half. Starting in July, when we get our summer monsoon rains, we were deluged with rain. In fact, the, the in Tucson, in southern Arizona, the month of July was the wettest month ever on record in history. Not the wettest July, the wettest single month in history. So we were just wow. dumped on in July. And that has continued. It's, it's, it was raining almost every day. It's continued through the first half of, um, of August. And we've even had, you know, we've had rains in the last couple of days. So, so that, that year and a half drought was the worst I've seen in my 30 years here. And then this July and beginning of August is the wettest I've ever seen here. So an example of, of the complexities. But but my point was the last year and a half was a horrible drought. And that was just kind of the capstone for about three years of pretty dry conditions um, with, a, with a few decently wet years, wet winters in there. But our fawn recruitment was below the level that we needed to maintain the population. So that 15 year increase has now the line has taken a little turn downward in the last couple of years. So, Jim, there is one number that 
I think pops out of the whole graph <laughs> and it's in Arizona. It's hunter numbers. Um, it looks like there were 35,000 more hunters last year. Well, what's going on there? Yeah, there's um, there. I'm, I'm going to check that figure, but there certainly was more hunters in the field. Um, but since we're all limited licenses, buck only, except for a few exceptions with those, we're limited licenses and, and we weren't offering um, that many more tags. That that increase, if, if that number is accurate, really has to be our archery numbers because our archery, um, our number of archers we had out there really did increase. We've been trying to promote what a great opportunity is to come here and, and archery hunt deer in 70 degrees and, and sunshine. And we've been very effective in, in doing that. But then also we've got the, the COVID year, which throughout, not even the West, throughout the country, numbers of, of, of people angling and hunting and hiking and just getting out um, just increased tremendously. And we're not the only state that has seen that. So kind of a perfect storm, a few things together that really bumped our overall numbers up, mostly in archery. And Joel, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't we set a record for our Arizona statewide tag last year? I mean, the interest is still there. Yeah, absolutely. The interest is out there. And, and we did, if I remember correctly, Steve, we did set a record for that tag. And yeah. Had great opportunity to put money back on the ground to help with mule deer research and mule deer management in the state of Arizona. Yeah, speaking of that, we just uh, increased some of our funding for on-the-ground projects there through our federal partners, and a lot of that has to do with the relationship we have with Arizona Game and Fish. So it's been great. And, Jim, I don't know if that buck that I saw floated around the Internet a couple days ago on the governor's tag is going to be inducive to what comes out of Arizona this year, but that was a whopper. So, mm -hmm. well, and before we skip on, uh, just because this is your state and you know it so well, I, um, I want to circle up with something else that has obviously been a priority for all of us, which has been the migration corridors uh, initiative as well, that, uh, that you have been actively engaged on. And, and obviously that is, you know, with the drought, you can't necessarily see um, see how that is benefiting. But I know some of the work that you're doing, some of the habitat work that's getting on the ground. Did that help make some of those areas a little bit more resilient to some of those drought effects? Yeah, absolutely. We talk about um, what can be done for for habitat that's getting hotter and drier, and and all of this work that not only Arizona but all the western states are doing. Uh, just improving habitat connectivity and, and landscape, but some people call it landscape permeability, just allowing animals to move across the landscape. And we're doing some really significant habitat projects to, to increase uh, the ability of animals to migrate and, and to move through fencing projects. All of that pretty obviously helps animals when things get really dry. The more they can move around and find some good spots, find some food, find some available water when their water hole dries up. The more they can move around, uh, the better the, the population as a whole can withstand these dry periods and, and, and not suffer uh, as much mortality. And, and we can just maintain higher deer populations if we work to help to connect that habitat. And, and MDF and Arizona Game and Fish, of course, we're at the very beginning of the secretarial order 3362 on, on wind range migration corridors. And we've done some, we've done some amazing, huge landscape scale habitat projects. So for the sake of time, Jim, not that we don't, couldn't talk about Arizona all day. Um, we're going to move on. Uh, and I'm just going to go down through the list alphabetically and choose a couple States out. California is the next one I want to jump to because um, it has both species. It has uh, black tail deer and it has mule deer. And if you look at the numbers, they had a slight increase, um, in numbers, but a decrease in harvest. 
And I would assume, Joel, that was probably because the fire restrictions last year. Um, and we're experiencing that right now. Yeah, California certainly is in a tough spot last year and this year and seems every year uh, from the fire part of that. And it, it definitely does put a damper on people's ability to get out there. Um, I'll be interested to see how it affects your populations as well as we move forward. Yeah, there's going to be significant reforestation and fire cleanup opportunities. You know, the other thing about California that's interesting is um, their migratory populations, what Jim was just talking about, seem to be declining. Their resident population of deer seem to be doing okay. And we know that deer migrate for a reason. They migrate for need. They migrate for spreading genetics. They migrate... Uh, based on pressures and, you know, losing animals that move across that landscape is um, a pretty big deal. And, you know, Joel, you and I have been talking here the last week, one of those migratory, documented migratory corridors with stopover habitats and everything else is in one of our project area and it's on fire right now. And, um, you know, we're watching those fire maps daily. We're worrying about what that means for the deer population and, you know, MDF will be stepping up uh, really our game here in the next year or two to figure out how we can help with that situation. Plus, it's drought. I mean, I looked at some of those pictures of the reservoirs that are empty. Um, we typically don't promote, you know, water as an issue unless it's needed. Well, in California, it's needed. So, um, yeah, California is so. yeah, a good example of one of those states that's the deer populations in different parts of the state are, are doing different things. A lot of diversity in, in what's going on in that state. Overall, it's been stable for the last couple of years. But like you said, there's different populations that are responding differently. That's a good example of the diversity within one jurisdiction. Well, it, it also is pretty dang big state. So there's, there is a lot of regional variation for a lot of different reasons in, in a state like California, for sure. We do need to take another break uh, to hear from our supporters one more time. But when we come back, let's dig into a few other ones because the next one down alphabetically is, uh, is where, where I happen to be hanging my hat these days, Colorado. So we'll talk about that when we come back. For the cold, heat, and rough terrain, Zeiss Optics are built to meet the wilderness and the elements up close. And mule deer hunters are going to love what they see. Zeiss has redesigned its entire product line and now includes lightweight precision rifle scopes, binoculars, rangefinders, and spotting scopes that the Western hunter demands. The industry-leading V4 scopes feature 14 new reticle options and scope configurations, while the V6 premium rifle scopes with shot FL glass lead the market in optics and repeatability. The Victory RF rangefinding binocular is the ultimate tool for glassing and ranging, while the Gavia 85 is the leader in premium packable lightweight spotting scopes. Zeiss Optics, delivering peak performance in even the most demanding conditions. For three generations and over 75 years, Weatherby has remained dedicated to excellence and innovation in producing quality rifles, shotguns, and ammunition. With 15 cartridges and unmatched ballistic superiority, know that nothing shoots flatter, hits harder, or is more accurate. Carry a Weatherby on your hunt of a lifetime and know you can depend on it to get the job done. At Weatherby, we exist to do one thing, inspire the dreams of hunters and shooters. To learn more, visit weatherby.com. All right, thanks again to our supporters for for helping keep Talking Mule Deer going. 
Uh, we had just talked about Arizona, spent a lot of time on that because of your own knowledge about that, and obviously California with, with all of the, the drought and fire going on there. But Colorado, uh, it is kind of regional, once again, as I talked about earlier, right? The west side has declining populations, but the plains in central Colorado seems to be going up. Any kind of thoughts or feedback on, on what's going on in Colorado right now? Yeah, like you said, diversity, because we had uh, in uh, 2006 to 2013, there was uh, um, that population with some severe winter effects, that population declined and then increased, a uh, small increase, and then it's been stable overall uh, recently. But you know, if you think about Colorado, the western half of the state is so much different than the eastern half, and so it just makes sense that deer populations are, are responding differently. Overall, the deer population in Colorado increased, which was encouraging from, from last year, from 2019 to 2020, from about uh, four, uh, 418,000 to- You mean 20 to 21. <laughs> yeah, you're, right. you're, but, you're a year behind. <laughs> well, no, actually the data, the data that's reported is, right, is that, about a year right. behind because yeah. when we write that, yeah. it takes a Fair while enough. for this to start. So, <laughs> so it is from 19 to, um, to 20, a year behind there. Sounds good. Well, we we have also been we we thankfully have been getting some of this monsoon rain here on the Front Range as well as some of the the Central Mountains. But the West Slope is the far western and southwest part of the state is still an exceptional drought, and I know that I, you know. And frankly, that's a little bit of a concern because my daughter has a the first buck tag for our family uh, for a while. So, and we're down in the Gunnison area. So, keeping our fingers crossed that they get a little moisture this fall. When yeah, you, didn't you the, have some mega fires last year? We had, yeah, um, the the first in August we had our biggest fire after the Hayman fire. That was the Pine Gulch fire, and then in September, the now number one and number two, the uh, the Cameron Peak and the uh, I'm blanking on the other one's name right now. But those uh, that we had two two hundred thousand plus acre fires that ran between in the north and north central part of the state burned and then the pine gulch was out there uh north of grand junction so yeah the top three fires in our state's history all happened between about august uh july and september uh of 2020 yeah if you look at the west wide drought maps in the last three weeks or so uh, as i was saying arizona turned from red to you know kind of a medium because we've got so much rainfall but that hasn't been the case in a lot of parts in the west a lot of parts in the west are still suffering from from that terrible drought and haven't just haven't caught up with some of the rain we have it we've had this unusual monsoon uh, moisture which usually comes up from the south and that's what we've benefited from but it hasn't reached uh, a lot of the west yet so jim i've got a question for you um i think it was i forget what year it was but uh colorado went from an over-the-counter general season to a limited quota have we had enough time to see the numbers stabilize and start looking at the trends based on that change uh, from, from when they went to limited, um, yeah, yeah. limited entry. Yeah. That, that happened, um, that happened in 1999 when that went from open to limited entry. And, and, um, there's a lot of erratic, uh, variation when it's not limited, obviously, because when you're limited, you've got a certain number of tags every year. And this, so things have certainly stabled out, but we, yeah, we definitely have, um, a lot of trend data in the last 20 years since that change occurred. Well, and then just looking at raw numbers, I mean, 427,500 deer, the only, you know, California's got more than that, but you're adding blacktail deer. So Colorado still is uh, top for deer in the, in the country. And, you know, we, um, we, we often call the West Slope, the mule deer factory. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, the Pine Gulch fire that, that we're very familiar with 
from previous work is extremely important from a rehabilitation restoration. But uh, yeah, I was just wondering about if we had enough data now to, to not compare apples and oranges, but we are comparing apples to apples each year. Yeah, yeah. Colorado definitely a powerhouse when it comes to mule deer. All right. The next one I want to jump into is Kansas. Uh, and I know they don't provide a lot of deer, you know, about 50,000, but there's some interesting things going on in Kansas. Jim, what's what's really the scoop there? Yeah, that the eastern so Kansas, um, Kansas, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota. You could run a basically run a line right down the middle of those uh, that that tier of states, and that's the eastern the eastern boundary of mule deer distribution. And so, anytime you've got a species on the edge of their distribution, they're going to be more affected by weather. I mean, that's why their distribution their distribution stops there for some reason. And so, you've got more variation in their distribution and their in their numbers there. And so. On those Great Plains states on the eastern boundary of mule deer distribution, we're seeing a, um, a receding to the west, a receding of mule deer populations in there. And those states and the biologists have been um, been been watching that. There's states like Kansas that have poured a whole bunch of radio colored deer in to learn more about survival rates and learn more about kind of their habitat needs and what's going on and what's making those populations fluctuate. So, you know, in a nutshell, they're on it. But that that is a phenomenon where we're seeing this recession on the eastern boundary of mule deer. Well, I do believe that one of the phenomena is uh, lower adult uh, female survival, right? Which That's been documented in some of the yeah, some of the survival studies for sure. Yeah, which is, you know, unusual if a doe makes it through, you know, the first 60 days, particularly the first year, her survivability is going to stay pretty constant and pretty high and then so, you know, as we know, it, it takes the does to increase populations and, and keep them going. And when you start seeing that, it, it it's, can be a warning sign. Um, it's an interesting phenomenon because we don't see it a lot. Um, yeah, dose then, survival is pretty much 85%, 86% across the board. You get a huge sample size, and it's always kind of funny because it comes in right at that number. You know, in Montana, we, we actually have an adaptive harvest strategy for mule deer based on waterfowl planning and everything else and in region six and seven sometimes we up our mule deer tags our mm -hmm. doe tags and it's because they're trying to manage two objective but when that happens as and we're in a current cycle of having a lot of tags um you can only imagine what the hunters say um, yeah you know but we're at like 58 bucks per 100 does in the eastern part of the state so we're, we're doing pretty well don't want to yeah but, on montana so but you talk to some of the folks up in the north central part of the state where they've been having severe drought there i mean i'm hearing some some rumors about that's where we we try to get some early fall grouse hunting done and, and just in general there's a big concern about how dry the upper great plains are right now so um, looking down the list here, I think the next uh, state I want to mention is Oregon. A lot of opportunity in Oregon and, you know, from the, from the folks there, I think it looks like they're stabilizing after some declines over the last 10 years. Jim, what's going on in Oregon? They have had a long-term, definitely a long-term decline. And I, and I think um, the narrative speaks to not much of a recovery from that decline. And they've been concerned about it a long time. And they've been, they, they again, too, have a lot of new radio collar deer because they're trying to learn more about survival and what's affecting population dynamics there. The black-tailed deer population seems to be relatively stable. Um, I think mule deer, the mule deer population has been declining for a while, and they're, they're concerned about it. Yeah, I mean, we saw a significant drop in um, harvest 5,000 animals between 19 and 20. And, and 
you know, it, it harvest sometimes isn't indicative of what populations are doing, but it does influence public's attitudes and support for mule deer management and other habitat management. And, you know, when you see drops like that, it can be a little bit concerning. Mm-hmm. So on the positive side, South Dakota, what's going on there? I mean, those numbers look to be in the blue. Yeah, they they um, they were concerned about about um, deer populations. They restricted some doe harvest about seven years, and the population's increasing, and the buck harvest is is increasing too. They in in some of those eastern tier states, as I mentioned, they're a little more subject to some annual variations, and um, it, it they just backed off on some antlerless harvest and, and allowed that population to grow a little bit. Yeah, and, and that's encouraging because I think as as demand moves up and some of our more traditional states, hunters are looking at some of those edge states and, and on the plains and in the badlands folks are looking at. I've seen some great, you know, being close enough to drive to that in a day. I'm always amazed at the number of mule deer I see over there in the Dakotas. Yeah, one state that we skipped over was Nevada, and I always find it amusing that 43% of the bucks harvested were four-point or better. <laughs> and i imagine when you go to a public meeting all kinds of people are angry about the mismanagement of that state I bet. yeah but they're dealing with their own issues i mean again they're part of the whole drought side of thing they also they are. are dealing with a lot of fire uh cheat grass invasive weed invasion yeah, che- annual mean, invasives huge there so they are actually reporting a declining uh mm-hmm. de- declining population so yes there are yep. some big bucks. Yes, they And they're the they, only state in the list that talks about degradation of habitat from wild horse and burrows, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, is a big issue for BLM and management and allotment management plans and everything else. But um, other states don't seem to have the issues, and that might be because of the dryness and aridness of, or it might be just numbers. But uh, to I, see I think that numbers, print, Nevada you know, is the epicenter of that issue for sure. Yes. And it's serious. And in drought years, it's <laughs> exacerbated in a big way, for sure. Yep. All right. Moving on, um, Utah. Uh, it's where MDF's located. You know, they made a change years ago to go from, uh, you know, opportunity and across the state to a mix of opportunity versus quality. And and it looks like some of that's been paying off. Jim, when, Jim and, and Joel, I'm going to throw this to you since you're right there. And I know you drew a, a Utah tag this year. So. What's going on in Utah? Well, I'm going to defer to Dr. Deer to tell us exactly <laughs> what's going on because most of my time has been spent here in the office in the five months since I've gotten here. But I was lucky enough to draw a tag and have been making it out a little bit on the weekends and uh, actually have yet to see a mule deer in my unit yet, but I've been guaranteed <laughs> that they're there. So we'll figure mark, that out in a month or so. We'll mark that as a decreasing population. Then. <laughs> no. Uh, well, you, you, uh, Utah has a couple of units that are limited entry um, units to allow bucks to get more mature and just have a better experience. And and 40%, they reported this year, 40% of the bucks in those units were five years old or older. So that, that looks to me like an effective um, way to manage limited entry hunts. For, for most of the state, certainly been affected by drought the last couple of years. Um, their population um, is about 315,000 and their population objective 405,000. So like I was saying before, a lot of states and certainly Utah, below population objective, but ha- they had a pretty, a pretty slow, steady increase in the population for um, about 15 years from 2000 or from uh, 93 to 2018. And then just in the last few years, they've declined. So there's a there's a situation where you, you might hear some people complaining because the population declined in the last few years, but 
that the population's been really doing pretty well for a decade and a half before that. You know, we've seen some information recently, Jim. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, the, uh, Randy Larson and Brock McMillan out of BYU um, in their monthly reporting that a couple of their studies, they, they have some what I consider alarming survivability of their fawns this year. Um, and as that information gets more proven up and if it carries through time, um, you know, it, it probably leads to that. It depends statement based on regional variability, but it's, uh, it is concerning in certain areas. Yeah. And I didn't, I saw that email. I didn't open it up yet. Cause I had some deadlines after being on vacation and fooling around for a week and a half and not thinking about this stuff, but was that uh, reduced fawn recruitment from the drought this year, or was it an overwinter an effect, a lasting effect from overwinter? Uh, I think there was a little of both. I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to defer back to the, the raw information. Yeah. Um, I didn't read it yet. You know, the other thing that we're learning from those studies is, you know, we've got animals moving quite a ways. Um, You know, we've got collared deer from Wyoming going into Utah and vice versa and actually into Idaho. So, you know, we're learning more and more. You talked about migrations, you know, Lucas Olson on our staff, who's a shared biologist with y'all at Game and Fish, has been, you know, showing us wonderful maps of animals that are doing a lot more and traveling a lot more. And Joel, I know recently you just have been up in Utah on one of our larger projects that collared deer are working. And I don't know if you want to give a little color to the value of, of that approach and that project. Yes, Steve, thanks. We've got a project that we're in year four on on the north slope of the Uintas, which is in the northeast part of Utah. And it's really a landscape effort to get in there and uh, thin out some areas through harvest and mastication uh, with the ultimate goal of being able to put fire on that landscape by the Forest Service on about 70,000 acres there. And what was really neat when we had the board up there last week, we had information that Lucas has shared with us uh, through the state biologists here in Utah that some of the deer that they have um, had collared on the south slope of the Uintas are going up and over uh, the Uintas and coming down and actually utilizing that area. And we just started a project there, um, taking a lot of the deer, actually wintering in Wyoming at the base of the Uintas and we don't have that data yet, but we're pretty sure we're going to show a lot of movement back and forth. And uh, I think the use of that area where we're thinning out these pine trees that have been growing thick for 30 years is going to be pretty, pretty tremendous. Yeah, and it would be great if we saw an increase of use because of that project. You know, oftentimes outcomes are long term and really hard to uh quantify but here we have actually collared deer going through a project area and, and we have before and and after information so it's, it's really exciting from from that standpoint yeah it's an example of using the some of that some of that secretarial order 3362 money looking at deer movements to actually affect more effective habitat improvement and we had a project where we had a whole bunch of radio colored animals in this area that had been treated and they were using it and then there was an adjacent area that wasn't treated yet and we used that to justify why we wanted to treat that adjacent area because these animals were using the treated area and it was pretty clear to see that once you treated this this adjacent lobe that they were just going to move in and use that area too so we can use all of this information to to target the most effective habitat improvements and for for those of you that uh, are members and get our magazine in our second quarter magazine that's the one that came in the spring 
in April. There was a story about our stewardship project and the Burnt Beaver project there in uh, Utah was was featured pretty heavily in that as well as some pictures that showed uh, some does in the area that was treated. They were there within a few days that they that they were there touring the the project site. We're looking out over the area that I think it had been masticated. I'm not sure if it was mastication or a thinning area. And there was there was two does looking back out at them pretty quickly after they did the the, the, the thinning process. So, so yeah. Well, and not not to jump in a whole nother subject matter here, but Jim, you talked about something that Joel and I and the staff have have really been looking to the future about. It's how we take information from research and put it into actionable conservation from MBF and. You know, uh, Lucas used a term the other day that I'm going to steal and use. And I, Joel, I saw you writing it down when he said it. It's the power of location. If we know what the deer are using, we then can capitalize on that and either target project work in that area or go to areas that should have use and try to improve it to get expansion of range. You know, it's we're getting technical resource selection function and, you know, observe versus expected and all that stuff we learn in classrooms really comes full circle when you look at taking collared information, giving it to professionals, and then those professionals then advising where land managers and organizations should be putting it on the ground. Yeah, and as we move forward in MDF and look into the future, that's something that I'm really interested in doing is taking the information that we're gaining through the research and the collar information out there, but also pairing it with the information that the state agencies have on what the populations are doing and where they need the help and having discussions with the state agencies, the landowner agencies, private landowners, figuring out where we can go in and really make a difference uh, with our investment, with the limited dollars that we have uh, so that we can really make a difference for deer herds out there and, draw more people and more interest to the work that MDF is doing. Well, and from the, you know, my limited experience of attending local chapter events and talking to members, they get excited about that stuff too. They actually see where they should be doing work, the fruits of their labor. And it only, you know, it snowballs into more membership, more people excited, more opportunity, more resources, everything. All right, guys, we have been talking for a little bit here. Um, What are, what Jim, I, th- I think I heard some awful statistic in your family this year about uh, your tag results this year. It was, uh, yeah, tragedy struck the Heffelfinger family when we <laughs> didn't get drawn for deer this year. In 30 years of applying in Arizona, I, years ago in the 90s, didn't get drawn one year. And I got a, I got a second draw tag and went out and killed a mule deer anyway. But this year, um, I put my 88-year-old father, me, and two of my sons in on a group application. And we have no deer tag this year. Um, I have some friends in Texas I can go over and fill my freezer with venison, but that's not really deer hunting in, in the, the way that we do it. It gives us a lot of venison to eat throughout the year, but um, I'm I'm trying to figure out what we're going to do instead of a deer hunt this year. Because in Arizona, you know, it's limited draw, buck-only hunting, and we have about 90,000 applicants. This year was a little different, but we normally have about 90,000 applicants for 45,000 buck-only tags. So about half of the applicants uh, aren't, aren't don't get deer tags. If you play the odds, you can be pretty successful, but um, it didn't happen to us. So we're pretty bummed. It happens. What about you, Steve? Um, you know, I burned my Wyoming stuff last year. You'll read in the next quarter magazine about that hunt. Um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky I live in Montana. I can buy a resident tag. We have a six week long archery season and a five week long 
uh, rifle season for deer. So I will spend uh, a portion of that out chasing deer in eastern and central Montana. I did draw a limited entry elk tag um, in that area that I passed all them bulls up when I was trophy hunting two years ago. Well, uh, I won't be trophy hunting this year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be looking to fill the freezer and have a good time. And, um, you know, my brother that's featured in that article is going to be back out hunting with me. So we're, we're really looking forward to it. And then I, I've got a slew of, of what I call meat tags. We're fortunate enough to have that adaptive harvest strategy for deer in Montana. So if you're in the right place, you can uh, get extra mule deer tags. And of course, we give out whitetail tags quite regularly. I, I don't think I'll hunt um, another state this year, just because of workload and, and obligations. And plus I took a bunch of time to go fishing this year. So, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, how about you? Well, I didn't draw anywhere, but, uh, but my focus tends to be around our, our daughter. Cause, uh, as a youth, she still gets some priorities. She did not draw. None of us drew, uh, any of our first round tag options, but in the secondary draw, um, as a youth, uh, she was able to get both a buck and a bull tag in the same unit in the same season. So, um, which, which is going to be kind of exciting because she's not ever had a, an antlered animal. She's, she has gotten a proghorn buck, but everything else has been of the female variety. So we're excited about that. The only problem is, uh, it is also right around when the regional and state volleyball tournaments are <laughs> for high school. So we'll see how that all lines out, but we, you know, camo uniforms with unfortunately something tells me that her coach is not going to be quite as, uh, as amenable to missing practices for hunting season, uh, nor will her school in her junior year, but we're going to make the best of it. So, well, I I'm in the same boat, Jody, and you know, my wife's the head volleyball right? coach, so I even don't have any influence on, you know, yeah. that either. I wish I did. We would spend more time out hunting, but you know, yeah, it's like, it, She's torn because uh, she absolutely, we all absolutely adore our family time out there. We, we all go together. We spend the time. We, it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, but obviously she's also pass- passionate about it. Now, Jody, I think we have a new nickname for Joel. I think it's King Midas. <laughs> yeah, so you somebody know. had the golden touch. <laughs> Joel, how'd you do on the draw this year? Yeah, I, I definitely had the beginner's luck and a, a lot of guidance from people that knew how to navigate the system well, out here. Well, uh, sometimes it's like you, everybody tells you put into this, you got to keep putting in because you're not going to draw it first, but that wasn't the case for you, right? Yeah. I, I, let me just say, I, I didn't get any preference points this year because <laughs> everything I put in for, I actually, I actually drew. So I, I mentioned earlier, I've got a, a Utah uh, rifle tag, also uh, drew a, a rifle tag in Eastern Colorado and thanks to Steve's help, figured out how to put in for a general tag in Montana and was lucky enough to draw that as well. So, <laughs> yeah, add that pronghorn tag in Wyoming and the turkey tags. And, uh, you know, I, I think Joel's going to be uh, capitalizing Joel, on that. You have a job leave. to do too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, well, and, and South Carolina just sent me my five deer tags for South Carolina as well. So. <laughs> You will have a full freezer. (laughs) Well, I'm glad, Joel, that you got that. You know, I know you haven't hunted mule deer before and uh, you'll, you're going to check that one off and and hopefully you'll harvest a mule deer. Uh, You'll get addicted like the rest of us are. And, you know, with the position you're in now, I think it will really mean a whole lot more than it could just because of, of that role. And, 
you know, we're here to help and, you know, having Dr. Deer at, at your fingertips at times can really. Look at it. No, no, don't X, Y. No, that's not Dr. Him. Mule Deer. Sorry. <laughs> I, and apparently he's got plenty of time on his hands to come yeah. out. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's the key. I'm not doing anything else this fall. <laughs> well, I, Jody, I just would like, a, a, you know, this is this has been a fun episode for us. Um, based on everybody's smiles on the camera. But, you know, I, I really want to encourage folks to go out there and join the Mule Deer Foundation, get more involved with uh, mule deer conservation at whatever level you choose. Uh, MDF is a great way to do that. And it's, you know, it's pretty cheap and it's very effective. And we, we are extremely good at taking limited resources and putting them on the ground and, and, you know, creating a much bigger effect than we could do alone. And, you know, we thank our partners, our chapter members, our, our general membership, you know, folks like Jim and everything, but it, but it all starts with a membership and, you know, we haven't plugged membership a lot in the past, but you know, we're going to start because it's important, you know, that that's where it starts is it starts at the individual saying, I, I care enough to be involved. Yeah. I've, I've been a member from the start. I used to, in Arizona, I used to go around with the old, old regional director and give talks like in Yuma and places to give a deer talk to try to generate uh, interest to, to establish chapters. And that was probably in the late nineties. I'm sure it was in the late nineties. Um, so I've just always felt so strongly that MBF is, is on the right track and doing good landscape scale things. And I've been a huge supporter from the start and a member. Well, thanks, Jim. And, and you know, the, for those of you that are members and get the magazine, you're seeing, uh, well, we re revamped the magazine, but we've also been able to show even more where the conservation programs are. We're also in the middle of a website uh, redo that'll be rolling out here in the next month or so. And that also is going to be continuing to build our conservation success story. But listening to the podcast is another great way for people to hear the, the tremendous work that the staff is doing and our volunteers and our chapters are doing. And so, we hope you'll agree that that there is one group that's really making a difference for mule deer and black-tailed deer on the landscape, and that's the Mule Deer Foundation. So if you're already a member, thank you. If you're not, join us. If you are and you've got friends who aren't, make sure that they know about us and, and, and join. Yeah, share your magazine and share the podcast among people that you know. Yeah. So, Joe, we're going to give you the last word, being the boss, and, and uh, hopefully that'll be on your way out the door to a successful scouting weekend. <laughs> I'm glad you said added that to a successful scouting weekend. It's a little too early for me to be shown the door. I hope <laughs> for sure that's not happening. Yeah, we no, won't I, let you go. <laughs> it's, it's been great to be be a part of this, and and again, I, I'm really excited about the direction that MDF is going. It's been a great foundation uh, that I stepped into here. There's a world of opportunity for this organization, and and we are a membership based organization. So Jim, I appreciate your longtime support and, and the words that we have said about that today. I won't belabor that, but we're also a habitat delivery organization at our core. Our, that's our mission. It's putting ha good habitat work on the ground for mule deer and black tailed deer. And the things that we've been talking about today and what we've interwoven with how we can uh, figure out where we do the work, the scale of work that we need to do and how we do that. That's really where we're going to be focused in the future moving forward. And uh, you'll be hearing more about that on this podcast as we go from the 75th episode that we're celebrating today to the 100th and the 200th and however long it goes on. So uh, thanks for the great work. Thanks uh, for you guys having the vision to put this podcast in place. 
a couple of years ago now, I guess, and persisting with it and sharing the good information about what MDF's doing and sharing what our state agency partners are doing. It's a great partnership. Thanks, Joel. And, and we do also thank our supporters. Obviously, they, they help make a lot of the, the work that we're doing, our corporate partners. Um, but Steve, until the next time, this is Jody Stemler. And I'm Steve Melinda, and thank you for talking mule deer. Thanks for talking mule deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talking Mule Deer.